Fortunately, because he is God, Jesus was fully divine, and he needed the patience that would come with that divinity to prevent his humanity from really doing some damage there in the temple during that first Holy Week. Remember, for the last four Sundays, for the next four Sundays until we conclude ordinary time, we are spending all of our Sunday Gospels and the later chapters of Matthew's Gospel really focusing on just 100 hours, and that is between Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his entry into the upper room on Mount Zion for the Last Supper on Holy Thursday. And therefore, as we have stated previously on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus kept going back into that temple, not looking for these confrontations that came to him so easily. He was going to that temple because he was preparing to fulfill his destiny. <clears throat> the temple in Israel was known as the Shekinah, the dwelling place of God, and there was nowhere on earth that Jesus felt closer to the Father than in that temple. And since he was about to give it all to fulfill the Father's will and forgive us our sins, he wanted to be in that holy place to prepare him for this holy work that he was about to undertake on the cross. And yet, he could barely get in a prayer because every time he turned around, there was another group of his critics that were hot on his heels, waiting to question him, debate with him, accuse him, <clears throat> try to trap him. And by this point, after the thousand days of Jesus' ministry that began at his baptism, there are nine different groups that had joined forces against him. There's the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the scholars of the law, the Romans, and the Herodians. And Jesus, in these previous encounters in the temple during that Holy Week, has already faced off with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the scholars of the law. Now it's the Pharisees and the Herodians who have come upon him. And what a strange pairing, because those two groups didn't like each other religiously, politically, socially. They hated each other in every way, the Pharisees and the Herodians. But as truth of that phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, they've joined forces because they hate Jesus more. The Pharisees because they believe Jesus is a heretic. The Herodians because they believe that Jesus is a revolutionary. And so they have come together there in the temple to ask him a question about the census tax. And yet, before they asked the question, they decided to butter Jesus up with false flattery that really was mockery for the Pharisees to tell Jesus that they believe that he speaks the truth and only speaks the truth. They didn't believe a word that Jesus said was true. They believed everything about him was a lie. But then they went on to say, you treat everybody the same. They were making that seem like a compliment. But the Pharisees, they don't like that. It is true. Jesus did treat everybody the same as children of God. They don't. The Pharisees, they looked upon people and would judge you by your economy, your social status, your blood, your birth, where you came from. And they would use God's law to mark all these people off as unworthy and unclean. For them to say Jesus treats all people the same, in their mind, no compliment. But now that they've offered their false flattery and mockery, then they decide to ask that question, is it lawful to pay the census tax or not? These groups have very clear and defined opinions in answer to that question. For the Pharisees, it would be a sin to pay it, for the Herodians, it would be a crime not to pay it. And Jesus already knows what they're thinking. But what of these Pharisees and their opposition to paying the tax? What's the problem? Well, <clears throat> the Pharisees didn't like the fact that Judah and Israel, by this point, had already been an occupied Roman province for a century. 
and much like the taxation without representation that spawned the Revolutionary War in our country, most of the occupied provinces felt that they were onerously overtaxed and no one could afford to pay all this money that was flowing into the capital to finance all those roads that lead to Rome and to finance more wars to enlarge their territory and more palaces for their emperors. So the Pharisees, they have a very natural opposition. But in terms of the paying of the tax itself, they looked upon it as a blasphemy, a religious sin, an offense against the first commandment. And why is that? Well, most of you in the back can't see this, but this is an enlarged version of a denarius, the currency in the Roman Empire. It was a coin probably the size of a dime. This one has been enlarged, and it has an image of the Roman emperor on it, which at that point in history was Tiberius Caesar, and that's his image. And here it says Caesar. They would have looked upon that as the title emperor. Caesar is emperor. Emperor is Caesar. But the problem the Pharisees have is where over here it says in Latin that this is the divine son of the most high God. We believe that Jesus is the divine son of the most high God. But the Romans believed that whoever was Caesar was the divine son of whoever was Caesar before him and that they were all gods in the Roman pantheon where they had gods for every purpose and gods in their midst in the person of their ruling class. For the Pharisees then, this was an offense against the first commandment. You shall have no strange gods before me. If they pay this tax, it would be a recognition that the emperor deserves to receive it. It would be like paying a tithe to a pagan idol. And so they can't pay it. And yet they didn't want to be thrown in prison for not paying. So usually what the Pharisees did is they took their Jewish currency and paid it to someone else who would pay the Roman currency for them. Talk about robbing Peter to pay Paul. But what about the Herodians? The Herodians, they love Caesar. They think that being an occupied Roman province is a good thing for Judah and Israel, that it improves and protects the lives of the people. Um, they were blind to all of the faults and failings of that bloody pagan empire. And so for them, if Jesus recommends that that tax not be paid, then he is a rabble-rouser, he is a revolutionary, and he deserves the conviction that he will soon receive at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So Jesus, he goes right down the middle. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. There's really no answer to their question, but also he didn't fall into their trap. What does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Jesus said, pay the tax. It won't change a thing. And we in America, we pay our taxes. We should anyway. Uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We have learned throughout history that that which makes a good citizen also makes a good Christian. And so we pay our taxes. We might not like how much is being sucked out of our check. We may not agree with what the government is spending it on, but we know that it is illegal for us to be a tax dodger and try to avoid paying it. And no matter how much money of our wealth or income gets taken up by taxes, it's not all of it. It is a significant portion. It is not all. That's give to Caesar what is Caesar's. To give to God what is God's, that's everything, including ourselves. So Jesus, in fact, has answered the question, but in a way they couldn't possibly have conceived. Jesus understands that he's God. He understands that he's part of the blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He knows that he didn't become a man when he was conceived in Mary's womb or when he was born of her at Christmas. He became flesh when he came into Mary and threw her into the world, but he's always existed. 
John's gospel starts with, through Jesus all things came to be. Without Jesus nothing would have come into being. Which means Jesus was there when God made everything out of nothing because there's never a time where there wasn't God and there wasn't a time when God wasn't a trinity. And so he's been there through all the world's trials and tribulations from the dawn of time. And he was certainly there when God made everything out of nothing, when God chose Israel of all the peoples on the earth with whom to make his covenant. And he understands as God that he has a power that far surpasses any earthly authority. And we need look no further than today's first reading from Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah 66 chapters, he's all over the place. God was giving him so much information that he had to share with God's people they couldn't keep up. He forecast the coming of the Messiah. He forecast the death of the Messiah. He forecast the Assyrian war uh, that they were going to lose and the people would be sent off as slaves. But what he talks about today isn't the Assyrian war with armies from Nineveh marching down from the north. That was during Isaiah's lifetime. In chapter 45, he's been given a message about something that's going to happen after the next war, over 200 years later. And that would be a war between Judah and Babylon. Babylon is present-day Iraq, east of Israel. And we hear God in the reading today refer to somebody named Cyrus. Well, Cyrus was not Jewish. He was not circumcised. He was not part of the covenant. He didn't even believe in one God. Cyrus was a pagan. But Isaiah said, after the next war, when all the men are living as slaves in exile, God is going to choose a pagan, Cyrus, make him a king of Persia, not Israel, Persia's present to Iran, and for one purpose, for the sake of Jacob, my servant Israel, Isaiah said. God was going to take a pagan, Cyrus, and make him king of Iran. Why? So he could invade Iraq. Why? To get the Israelites out and to bring them home, to bring them back to the promised land, to repatriate them. And Cyrus, at his own expense, would even pay to rebuild their temple. For God, he himself does not know or worship. Four times, Isaiah said in the reading today, for I am the Lord, there is no other. That's why Jesus had no fear of Tiberius Caesar. He knew that man was only immortal, just like the rest of us. For Jesus then, having all this history behind him of how God can use earthly kings, even those who do not believe in him, to do his will is proof of his power. Jesus is God, and God can do whatever he wills with whomever he wills for as long as he wills it. And so that really shrinks it down for us. Caesar, dust to the ages. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we are going to give to God what is God's, that is our life, and everything that means anything to us in it, because all things come from him, all things belong to him, and all things should be used for his glory. And just as God used a pagan king to get his people out of exile and bring them home, God, who writes straight with crooked lines, was going to use his son's murder in order to bring about something very great in centuries to pass. How and why? Because Jesus he eventually, the Herodians succeeded. He was convicted as an insurrectionist, a revolutionary against Rome. That's why he was crucified. That's why Pontius Pilate sentenced him to die. But the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christians. Jesus' death would pave the way for the church. And 10 of the 12 apostles would spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, becoming martyrs for the faith. 25 of the first 31 popes, same thing, martyrs for the faith. 
And they would take that gospel right inside the belly of the beast like a Trojan horse. The gospel of Jesus Christ, three centuries after his death, would bring about the conversion of the Roman Empire, the destruction of the pagan temples of Rome, and the erection of Christian churches and basilicas right over their foundations. That's what God can do because it's all his anyway. Let us 